yet again Israel uh, always faces the uh, Palestinian uh, determination and resistance, uh, Palestinian demand of freedom and basic human rights with fires, with bullets, with death and uh, with blood. My case is very clear. They took away my home by force at gunpoint and I want it back. Another vision continues to animate Palestinian hopes and strategies for a restoration of their rights and for, re for returning them to their homes. We need to forsake the kind of language and paradigms which deny historical fact that Zionism is a settler colonialist movement. Will you return? Will you help us return? The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Today is Monday, May 14th, and earlier today, Israeli forces massacred dozens of Palestinian protesters who are marching along the boundaries of the besieged Gaza Strip for what has been billed as the climax of the Great March of Return. Hundreds have been injured with live ammunition and tear gas. This makes Monday the bloodiest single day since the rallies began on March 30th, calling for an end to Israel's lethal siege of Gaza and the right of refugees, who are two-thirds of Gaza's two million residents, to return to homes from which they were expelled and barred from returning by Israel because they are not Jewish. The massacre in Gaza coincided with the planned ceremony to open the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. We're joined once again by our contributor, Rifat Alarir, in Gaza City. Rifat, thank you so much for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada mm. podcast. Thank you, Nora, for having me again. So uh, lay out what happened today, what you saw. Uh, today, as you said in the introduction, it was the bloodiest day in the past uh, uh, two months uh, since Palestinians started the uh, the rally to march for freedom, to march for their right of return, to march for uh, demanding Israel to end the brutal occupation and, and siege. So, uh, and again, it, this coincides with the uh, anniversary of the Palestinian Nakba, the uh, seven decades since the displacement of, of Palestinians. Uh, it also comes with Trump uh, moving officially, relocating the um, the embassy uh, into occupied uh, Jerusalem. So um, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians throughout Gaza Strip uh, were gathering, were uh, approaching the the siege as uh, again as a protest. And uh, as it happened in the past uh, seven uh, weeks. Uh, the, uh, Israel simply started shooting at, at Palestinians. This time there were so many Palestinians that every single minute you would hear a shot here or there and then uh, someone would uh, fall down, an, an elderly man, a child, uh, a, a simply a woman or, or a young man. You don't have to be uh, throwing stones. You don't have to be uh, burning a tire. Um, you don't have to be clo even close to, to, to the border. So the scene was uh, was horrific. The scene was uh, un un uh, unprecedented. Uh, 50, over 50 Palestinians were massacred throughout uh, the Gaza Strip. Again, the bloodiest day since the end of the 2014 war on, on Gaza. 
That's the voice of Rifat Alarir. Uh, Rifat, you were taking videos uh, and photo and and photographs uh, during the march earlier today. Yeah. Um, what were some of the scenes that you can tell us? Uh, you, you said this was unprecedented. How was this different from what you saw at the beginning of the march, maybe six weeks ago? Uh, this was, uh, as I said, uh, unprecedented because uh, the you know the first Friday was uh, witnessed the um, again an, an, an unprecedented gathering. I think today we had double that number of, uh, of Palestinians. At least I'm talking about uh, uh, the Gaza City uh, gathering, and the same was similar in Rafah and Khanunis in North Gaza and the middle uh, middle area. So uh, the number of people was was huge. Uh, people were uh, uh, today, especially today, were getting closer and closer. Uh, uh, in the past, we we would have, for example, a couple of hundred uh, thousand, a couple of thousand people. Uh, uh, near the border, reacting to Israeli snipers with sling shots, with uh, uh, stones uh, burning their tires. But today, uh, all people, uh, especially women, there were so many women uh, getting uh, even closer and closer to the uh, to the border. So that was uh, one thing I witnessed uh, today. Uh, so many women, elderly women, elderly people were uh, getting even nearer and nearer to. to to their own villages across the, uh, the the fence, and also people were uh, not afraid of the, the snipers. In the past, sometimes the Israel the Israeli forces would be sending their drones to throw uh, tear gas canisters, and not, not the people the young people would be uh, running away for a short while and then come back. And today it was it was different. The, there was determination. People really were hoping that something could happen. At least Israel uh, could stop uh, uh, shooting and, and killing them. At least they were hoping that this day uh, would bring something, some, some comfort to the, uh, to the Palestinians in Gaza who were uh, besieged. But yet again, Israel uh, always faces, faces the uh, Palestinian uh, determination and resistance, uh, Palestinian uh, Palestinian uh, demand uh, of of freedom and basically human rights with fires, with fire, with with bullets, with death, and uh, with blood. Rifat, uh, can you talk about what it was like covering this? Uh, what it is like covering this uh, as a journalist, someone who's trying to document what's happening. Um, as as journalists are are also being targeted uh, yeah, by yeah, Israel. Yeah. It's it's terrifying, uh, honestly. Like being there is terrifying because, like I said, you don't have to be doing anything to be targeted. If you're carrying a, a camera or a, even a mobile phone taking footage, it makes you uh, again a target. Uh, last Friday, my my friend and colleague, journalist uh, Motasim Dalul, who writes for the Middle East Monitor, was was hit uh, by Israeli uh, an Israeli sniper. Uh, and he, he was hit exactly in the area uh, in his body, in the same spot where Yasser uh, Murtaja and Ahmed Abu Hussein uh, were, were shot exactly near, uh, underneath their armpit, where uh, the you know the the, uh, the vest, the press vest, is not you know protecting uh, them. And today, while uh, the of Al Jazeera also was was shot in his in his arm, so it is terrifying. But again, we have to do what we have to do. We can't be intimidated by Israel. We can't 
uh, uh, Neil because Israel is using a uh, force. Israel has always used uh, force. If Palestinian uh, uh, want to stop their resistance, they could have done that uh, seven de- decades ago. But again, uh, despite the the intimidation, despite the Israeli terror, uh, Palestinians kept coming back. Uh, they kept uh, gathering. Uh, uh, I, I left the scene around uh, 3 p- p.m. and again, more and more people were marching. Despite again the news reports that Israel already uh, massacred around uh, 30 people until 3 p.m. today. Rifat, can you talk about the abilities and the constraints on medical personnel in the field at the Great March treating people's wounds uh, and in the hospitals, Mm. given the enormous shortages of basic medicines and supplies due to Israel's 11-year-old blockade? Uh, Again, uh, this is the Israeli occupation. It started seven uh, decades ago. Palestinians are not allowed to have any sustainable uh, source of anything. Um, the factories were destroyed. Their ability to store uh, medicine uh, is not there also. And I, I, I don't want to forget that the Palestinian Authority is also complicit here because it's also waging its own war on uh, on Gaza. And because of uh, this, um, uh, this much has been going on for now over seven uh, weeks, there is a huge shortage uh, in the uh, medical equipment, in the medical in, in medicine, in um, uh, the, you know, tools for doctors. I, uh, they were calling for blood donation today because, again, with a huge number of people uh, shot, injured, and uh, and killed. Now, this is part of the Israeli war on on Gaza. If you don't get, uh, uh, if you don't uh, uh, die because you were shot, you will die because you will go to hospital, and you will not find the place. Uh, the, uh, you will not find your bed, you will not find the proper uh, treatment. This is one. The other thing is that the ambulances themselves were targeted, were shot at, at several times. We, we've seen uh, uh, medical staff targeted by tear gas and by bullets. Uh, one of the uh, uh, people who were killed uh, today is uh, a Palestinian uh, firefighter who works for the Civil uh, Defense Brigade. Uh, again, he was uh, doing his job. He was clearly marked as a uh, civil defense uh, uh, person. But again, Israel is, is not uh, uh, sparing anybody. Finally, Rifat Al-Rir, between March 30th and yesterday, Israel had already killed more than 50 Palestinians and injured thousands, as, uh, injured thousands more as part of a deliberate shoot-to-kill policy. The death toll has now doubled in a single day. Uh, the International yeah. Criminal Court has said that they are monitoring Israel's actions, and the prosecutor for the ICC has even warned that uh, last month that this could lead to war crimes trials for Israeli leaders. What can you say about Israel's actions today and the last six, seven weeks in Gaza as part of the 70 years of policies of expulsion, ethnic cleansing, and apartheid meted out against Palestinians. What does this say about the tenacity of the Palestinian liberation struggle? Um, uh, for many, uh, maybe some people find this surprising, uh, find this excessive use of, of power, what Israel is, is doing. But as Palestinians, we have been under uh, a really medieval, brutal occupation for seven uh, decades. Uh, we had young uh, people growing up in Gaza. We have 
uh, everybody was was hurt in a way or another. We we had stories from our grandparents how they were brutalized in the 50s, and from our parents how we they were always targeted, attacked by Israeli soldiers uh, in the in the uh, 60s, 70s, and then 80s. And then we ourselves, as kids going to school, we were targeted by Israeli. Uh, uh, occupation uh, militias in in the streets of the Gaza Gaza city. This uh, is not surprising for uh, for us as Palestinians. We have lived every single minute of a seven decade uh, long uh, occupation. Israel is getting more ferocious, more uh, uh, criminal by the minute again because the uh, Palestinian struggle is gaining more momentum, especially in the Gaza Strip, where more and more people are joining the uh, non-violent uh, peaceful protest. Israel is sending a message uh, that we will crush you, no matter what what uh, resistance means you uh, you adopt. Uh, again, on on the other hand, uh, uh, Palestinians remain steadfast. Palestinians remain determined. Uh, to achieve their uh, goals of independence and uh, and freedom, I always like to uh, emphasize the fact that many Palestinians see uh, their struggle against the Zionist occupation as an extension to the uh, struggles around the world throughout time and place. Uh, perhaps in India, perhaps the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, and also part of the uh, the. Uh, 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 black the black uh, people struggle in in America and the Black Lives Matter movement now is against uh, racism in uh, in America and I'm currently tweeting a video of uh, Arab song in that I heard today in the uh, in in the in the march and I really felt you know proud that Palestinians realized that our struggle is part of the universal struggle against oppression, injustices, and racism. We're going to leave it right there, but um, thank you so much, Rifat Alarir. You are a writer and a contributor to the Electronic Intifada. You're also a professor and the co-editor of uh, Gaza Writes Back. And on Twitter, uh, you are at This Is Gaza. Um, so I encourage our, our listeners and readers to go on Twitter and, and um, look at some of the photos and videos that Rifat has been uploading up there. Um, Rifat Alarir, thank you so much. Please be safe, and we'll, um, we'll talk thank to you very you. soon. Thank you, Nora, for having me. Good luck. Thank you. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. May 15th is the day Palestinians mark the 70th anniversary of the Nakba, the catastrophe, when in 1948, Israel declared itself a state and Zionist militias expelled more than 750,000 Palestinians from their lands, homes, and properties. This year, Palestinians in the occupied Gaza Strip have been gathering every Friday since March 30th, participating in activities related to the Great March of Return, a collective demand to end the 11-year-old blockade and the right to return to their lands and homes 70 years on. Two-thirds of Gaza's population of two million are refugees from the lands on which the state of Israel was declared in 1948. They are part of a population of about seven million Palestinian refugees living in refugee camps in the occupied West Bank, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon, and in the global diaspora, whom Israel has prevented from returning to their lands and homes because they are not Jewish. How should the events of 1948 be examined? What are the prospects for a decolonized future? And how are Palestinians continuing to plan for their return? 
Today, we're going to hear excerpts of talks given by the doctor, writer, and academic Ghada Karmi, scholar Joseph Massad, and historians and researchers Ilan Pape and Salman Abusita, who all dive deeply into the history and anatomy of the Nakba, historic and ongoing. First, Palestinian researcher and geographer Salman Abusita, whose decades of research have demonstrated that Palestinian return is practical as well as just. Abusita gave an hour-long keynote speech at the 2013 Right of Return Conference at Boston University. Here are some excerpts from that speech. There is a basic undeniable fact. Palestine is the patrimony of Palestinians. No amount of spin, Hasbara, or in Arabic, Zabara, <laughs> uh, myths, bombs, F-16s, roadblocks, uh, siege, apartheid walls, ethnic cleansing, and apartheid, nothing of that will, will change that fundamental fact. Injustice has a short life, and justice will uh, always prevail in the end. Um, I don't need to tell you about the virtues of principles such as justice and what it entails. I don't need to tell you that racism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and all that uh, is evil. Although sometimes we have to preach this to other people. Um, also, I don't need to tell you that colonialism is also an evil which has subsided to a large extent, except in Palestine. But what I'd like to present to you today, some relevant facts, which presumably would help you to form, not an opinion, you already have one, but to form the body of the crime which befell the Palestinians. And not only that, we know, we know most of the facts about this, uh, although the details about 1948 is by far not yet recorded. But we want to derive from this something else. We want to say, this is the crime. We described it. We actually outlined it and examined its elements. The next question is, what to do about it? We must reverse it. Um, uh, and this is the duty which is now before us. And my case is very clear. They took away my home by force at gunpoint, and I want it back. I'm determined to get it back. <laughs> this is my case, but it's also the cause of 12 million Palestinians. We defined what the problem is. We defined what the crime is. We have now to think in, a new, in new terms. We have to solve that. We have to find a solution. We have to make a remedy of this. Remedy, as uh, um, <clears throat> uh, Max explained, has been taking place in Abkhazia, in Uganda, in Bosnia, everywhere. Why not in Palestine? Now, we must really work hard, all of us, to do this we must reverse the ethnic cleansing. Of course we must do that, and this will happen. But people say, people say, uh, <clears throat> yes, it's, it's really correct and it's human, but you know the country, your country now is full of people, and your villages are destroyed, and, 
Uh, and the, even refugees themselves are dispersed everywhere. We don't know where they are. But I'll tell you something. Even if all this is true, this doesn't in any way diminish from the right to return. Even in the whole place. It... it doesn't diminish. It's your home. It's your home. It doesn't diminish that the occupant has brought in his friends and cousins and built probably a second story and all that. No, it doesn't. But I tell you, it is not true. Even that is not true. Let us see how it is. Do we know the people, the Palestinians? Yes, we do. We know where they are from. Here is the village called Algeria, just north of Gaza. We know where the people of Algeria are residing now in these blue circles. Take another one, another village. Beit Mahsir. This is uh, uh, just west of Jerusalem. We know where the people of Beit Mahsir are now residing. Take another one in the Galilee, Safuria. We know their names and their children, their wife and their brothers and so on. We know where they are. Now, we can do this in reverse also. We can look at the refugee camp in Jabalia, for example, and we know where these people come from in, in Jabalia. When we have, as uh, Ziad today, we have uh, trucks and buses for people to go back to their home, and these buses stand at Jabalia camp. We know they come from these villages. And we also, uh, those in Dehesha camp, where is Ziad? He's here. He can know the villages they come from. And Ain um, al-Hilwa, and so on. So we have no problem. We have a database of six million Palestinians. We know where they are. We know their property. We know where they come from. We know their uh, uncles and, and so on, and where they are residing today, uh, waiting for return. But then the next question is, is Israel crowded? There is no place for people to go there to return? I told you, of course, if it is true or not, uh, even if it was true, that doesn't, is not a good reason. But we made this analysis. Israel has 46 natural regions, they call them. And we analyzed them one by one. And we found that 84% of Israeli Jews live in 17% of, uh, 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 of Israel area. 84% live in 17%. Who lives in the 84% uh, of Israel? Few kibbutz and the army. I'll explain that. Let me give you this picture, which I think is very interesting. We, we just detailed every Palestinian village land, who lives there today, and how many kibbutz, and what kind of settlements are there, and in reverse, where are the people who, who, who own this village land where they are today? These areas, which you see in blue, these areas, in these areas, 80% uh, of Israeli Jews live in 4% of Israel area. These are 49. Israeli localities out of about 1,000. What does that tell you? 
49 localities. Out of 1,000, have 80% population. It means there are so many other localities which are, you know, tiny places uh, uh, which are kibbutz mostly. So, uh, therefore, the question of the place is, uh, is uh, full is not right. Um, I would like to examine in detail an area which is subject of news so much. Here, for example, this one is always doing the right thing. Here is Jerusalem, and here is Tel Aviv, Jaffa, and this is Gaza. In this uh, slide, the red dots are the depopulated Palestinian villages. What happens when they were expelled? The blue area uh, is the Israeli urban expansion today. So you can see the extent of this Beersheba, this Al-Majdal, this is Dud, and the rest almost empty. Who used this land? Jewish National Fund took this land in order to build kibbutz on it. You know Jewish National Fund? You know those people who, who you know these gala dinners where jeweled women with night, you know, evening dresses and tuxedos and so on collect money for millions? That's Jewish National Fund. Why did they collect money? To steal your land and build on it. And ironically, in the United States and in Europe, these are called charity, it's called charity organization. It's tax exempt. Tax exempt to steal your, to take your money to steal other people's land. Now, what they are using it for, this is, this is the use of this area today. The red dots are strategic military points. And the yellow area is closed military area. This closed military area, and these are strategic military points. There are very few people living in this area. As I explain, I'll explain even a bit more. So obviously, Israel is a huge military base. It's the largest military base between Paris and Pijin. It's a huge military base with people there manning it as people, uh, as national of, of this country. If there is peace, if we uh, do not need these military bases, we can actually uh, rebuild our Palestinian villages in the same locations with no obstruction to the existing uh, uh, urban expansion. Um, take, for example, the southern district of Palestine. All rural Jews in that uh, area are less than one refugee camp. This is the present occupant occupants in, uh, in the southern district. And uh, when the refugees in Gaza return, they can return to their places without any conflict of any place with anybody. And you can see they actually can walk home. Now, this is fine. So that's the population. And we know the land. We will do one step more. We are not going to just to um, you know, show plans and all that, we'll take one more positive step. And this more positive step, we have now a, a project, we're working on it, 
We want to document the destroyed Palestinian villages. We want to know, make maps of the houses of these villages and who owns each single house. And so that uh, we can then redesign the village again. Of course, we have increased eight times and we are going to enter into international competition, competition among Palestinian architects who will redesign their own villages on the same location and for the same population, but with decreased numbers. So we divided Palestine into 10 areas. Each area has a significant village design. Why? Because of the terrain. For example, here, this is Hula Valley, and then here, Upper Galilee Hills, and here, Akka Acre, here, Haifa Acre, and so on. Each one of those areas, we designed it so that the village design in this area is uniform. It belongs to the same characteristics, weather, uh, height, terrain, uh, building materials, and so on. And as an example, we have aerial photo 1948 of uh, Beit Jirja, and we actually marked the houses in the village, and we know the names of the owners of these houses, uh, uh, and we, we, we repeat this same process to uh, other villages. And actually, when you think of um, the reconstruction of these villages, it's not a difficult task at all, because here is, here is the amount of uh, labor we need, here is the amount of money, here is the amount of unit. We need only one and a half million units, which are much less than what Palestinian engineers built in the Gulf and Saudi Arabia. So it's not a big deal. And we have the, the labor for it. And let me tell you one thing. Examine, for example, the money paid by the United States to Israel, $133 billion, plus the hidden amounts. Think of the money paid by European Union to, to Israel. Think of all the expenses which have been uh, a result of the war since 1948. Add this number, you get some number, I don't know how much, but let us say $800 billion. I bet you with one-tenth of this amount, we can rebuild Palestine. One-tenth of this amount. And only once. It's only once. It's not a drain on the United States budget which is in terrible state at the moment. It's actually n once, once. Otherwise, you know, the tap will remain open, open. So um, there is no escape from the fact that um, we have to uh, <clears throat> uh, implement the uh, right of return. And from all this, let me conclude by saying the UN reaffirmed the right of return 135 times. So we have no problem, as you see, neither from logistic or legal or population or land or property or economics or geography or history. We have no problem with that. Of course, we have only the exception, the United States and Israel alliance to prevent that. Well. We have said earlier that they retained everywhere except in Palestine. Why this is so? Well, I'm sure you know that. 
The answer is that the Israel racist policies, Israel racist doctrine, Israel's racist uh, <clears throat> history of death and destruction. Therefore, if we have to return, we have to abolish this. There's no question about it. Of course, I agree it is a difficult task, but not impossible. History tells us many, give us many similar stories. Why, do I, why am I opt optimistic about this? There are some reasons for that. First, that Israel has been based on a huge pile of mythology, fabrication, and religious ideology, and mythology. And of course, none of this can be the basis of international law, and it can never be the basis of permanence uh, in any period in history. Second, Israel is a colonial project conceived and implemented from outside with the support of the colonial powers. All colonial projects cannot last. Third, Israel is employing Jabotinsky doctrine, which relies solely on brutal force without the need for any moral or legal justification. It depends on waging constant wars, all of which must be victorious. Of course, you know, living by the sword, you die by the sword. Fourth, Israel has implemented <clears throat> the largest comprehensive ethnic cleansing in modern history. In return, the Palestinian population remains largely in Palestine and along its borders, almost half and half. 12 million people, or, uh, or only 12% of, of them are in Europe and America, and 88% are in Palestine and around it. So, so their presence on the land or near the land is a physical reality. Nobody can change that. Fifth, Israel continued to implement the ethnic cleansing and confiscation of land all the time. So we are not talking about Nakba as a historical single event. We are talking about ongoing Nakba. We are going to go, talking about a process which is co uh, continuous until this day. Sixth, although the Israeli narrative has dominated the Western media for decades, Israeli practices have now, through better world communication, revealed the true face of Israel and vindicated the Palestinian narrative of 1948. That meant that most of the world, with an increasing number of human rights movements in Europe and America, consider Israel a threat to world peace. And therefore, I consider that this constant violation of every article in human rights charter will eventually come to an end. We should never, ever lose hope in justice. There, are, there is no question that justice will ultimately prevail. I'm only asking you to keep faith in justice and let us work together to make the time for justice implementation sooner rather than later. Thank you very much. That was researcher and geographer Salman Abusita speaking at the 2013 Rite of Return Conference at Boston University. Up next, an excerpt from a speech given at the same conference by scholar and writer Joseph Massad. Another vision continues to animate Palestinian hopes and strategies for a restoration of their rights and for, re for returning them to their homes. The Palestinian novelist Ghassan Kanafani 
articulated this vision more than four decades ago in his important 1969 novel, Returning to Haifa. Kanafani, in that novel, explored the return of, the expelled, of, of expelled Palestinians to their homes. The novel depicts a Palestinian couple, Saeed and Safiya, refugees from Haifa who were expelled to the West Bank, driving back to their home in Haifa in June 1969. It's like 67, I'm sorry. A return made possible by Israel's invasion and occupation of the West Bank a few weeks earlier. In the frenzy of the 1948 expulsion, the Palestinian couple's firstborn son, Khaldun, which means the immortal one, was left behind. Dreaming for 19 years of returning to their home in Haifa and of recovering their lost child, the Palestinians arrive at their home, now occupied by a European Jewish family and their Palestinian son. Khaldun, it turned out, had been abducted and adopted taken over by Zionism just as the family home had been, just as the entire country had been. Renamed Dov, bear, predatory bear perhaps, their son was now serving in the Israeli army. The Palestinian couple's second son, Khalid, also a variation on Khaldun, meaning the immortal one, was born in the West Bank, wanted to join the Palestinian guerrillas, but his parents had opposed his decision before returning to Haifa. Yet their return to their still-colonized homeland forced them to pose, to pose the question, what is a homeland? Saeed's answer to Sophia resists their erstwhile reactionary nostalgia that sought to, to return to Haifa or to a Haifa that once was and insists not on a pre-colonial past but on a decolonized future. Let me quote what he says. I am looking for the real Palestine, the Palestine that is more than a memory, more than a son. As for us, you and I, Safiya, Palestine was something we searched for under the dust of memory. And look what we found under the dust, yet more dust. We made a mistake when we thought the homeland was only the past. For Khalid, their son in the West Bank, the homeland is the future. This is why Khalid wants to carry arms. There are tens of thousands like Khalid, who are not halted by the tears men shed while looking in the depth of their defeats for scraps of their shields and broken flowers, but look forward to the future. And in, do in doing so, they correct our mistakes, indeed the mistakes of the entire world. Dov is our shame, but Khalid is our enduring honor. Did I, did I not tell you from the beginning that we should not have come back? and that our return requires that a war be waged. Let's go, Unquote. The war continues to be waged, but it is not a war of arms. There is an ongoing Palestinian legal and political struggle that aims to achieve a decolonized future for Palestinians and Jews. It is the war of boycott, or more precisely, the war of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. BDS understands well that colonization and expulsion are one and the same process, and that the reversal of one is the reversal of the other. The nonviolent war launched a decade ago by the Palestinian BDS movement and its international allies demands an end to Zionist colonization and the reversal of it through the dismantlement of the settler colonial racial structure that governs Israel and prevents the return of the Palestinian refugees. Hence the insistence by the BDS movement that overturning the racial legal privileges of Israeli Jews and turning Palestinians and Jews into equal citizens 
is the only program for decolonization and the only condition of and for the return of the Palestinian refugees. Thank you for staying. That was an excerpt of a speech by Joseph Massad given at the Right of Return conference in Boston in 2013. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast special episode commemorating the 70th anniversary of the Nakba. Writer, physician, activist, and academic Ghada Karmi was expelled by Zionist forces from her home in Jerusalem as a young child in 1948. She writes about her experience in her memoir, In Search of Fatima, a Palestinian story. In 2015, she discussed and read from her newest book, Return, a Palestinian memoir, at the Palestine Center in Washington, D.C. Here is an excerpt of her talk. Uh, What I wanted to do with the book was to convey to the reader a reality, the reality, the Palestinian reality today. Because you know, and I know, that the way it's presented, and particularly in this country, uh, it's presented as... Uh, somehow equivalent, you know. On the one hand, you've got Israel, which has got a government and an army, and on the other, you've got the Palestinian Authority, which has a militia uh, and, you know, has its own state, two states, and um, they can negotiate with each other, they can communicate with each other, and in that misrepresentation, the reality, of course, is completely disguised. Uh, and reality, which nobody uh, in the media or, or even people, by the way, who talk about this and who are supposedly sympathetic, what they won't do is represent the reality, what's really going on. And what's really going on isn't just Israeli brutality and how horrible, I, we don't, I don't mean that. The reality is this is a settler project. It's a settler colonial project. It was from the beginning. And the people it has colonized and whose lands it has stolen are living in a corner of their old homeland. Uh, you know, the way, that's the reality. Whether they've got something they call an authority, whether other people want to call it a government, is, not, is, not, is irrelevant. The reality is they are an occupied people. So why would you expect them to negotiate with their occupier or get any kind of deal out of the occupier, you know? So I very much wanted to present the reader. I mean, this is a memoir, so it's not a political um, discourse, uh, tract. It's uh, a memoir seen through my eyes how life really is, how people really fare. But, of course, you realize that as I saw these things, I became more and more disheartened, really. I kept trying, apart from the refugee camps, which I've just told you about, but really, I saw people struggling from day to day. Who can blame them? You know, they've got the army on their necks. They've got these checkpoints. They've got raids, uh, which the army feels itself free to do whenever it feels like, which takes away young men, puts them in prison, you know, It's as much as they can do to stand on their two feet and to survive. Now, when I went to Gaza, the the impression was even more, uh, even stronger. I don't honestly know, to tell you the truth, how. Let me see if I can find it. How how they how they survived? I I really don't know because Gaza was so bad. It was so bad. I. 
I just can't tell you how bad it was. Whatever you read, however much you read, will never convey the reality. And I, I described it as well as I could. And I, I you know, hope that when people read it, they, they, it's as if they were there. Now, in this um, uh, extract, I, I walked up one morning. I was at the hotel in Gaza. And I woke early and decided to take a walk along the empty streets around the hotel where it was, while it was still relatively cool. Since arriving in Gaza, I had seen little of the UN party I had come with. They were busy with their projects and had picked up two more workers who had been in Jerusalem and, return, and would return with us. Looking at the scenes around me, I might have been in a poor Indian city. Cracked pavements, mounds of rubble and sand, overflowing rubbish bins. A young boy passed, passed by me barefoot, sooty black with dirt, his blue eyes and fairish hair, suggesting his normal complexion underneath was also fair. A grubby t-shirt and short trousers clothed his angular frame. The beaches were deserted, no throngs of skinny boys like him splashing and running in and out of the waves. The Israeli soldiers in their watchtower were awake like me, and I wondered how they felt as they watched the people below living in such dilapidation and poverty just a few miles from their own modern, prosperous towns. Did they think those people wanted to live like that? For one mad moment, I wanted to shout up at them to come and talk to me, to drag them down from their watchtower by their bulletproof vests and their guns and their walkie-talkies. I wanted to push my face up against theirs and shout, look around you, properly. These are human beings here, not beasts, not vermin. They want to live decent lives like you. Understand? The power of the image I had conjured up made me so shake with agitation, I had to walk on quickly to dissipate the feeling. And after a while, calm down. So, as you can see, this was this, these were the feelings it evoked in me. It was so, so wanton, so, so cruel in a, in, a, in a way which is mindless. Why, why would you punish people who have done nothing to you? Why? Why would you besiege them? Why would you kill them? Why would you make their lives so intolerable? Why? What does it do for these Israelis? What do they get out of it? Really, I couldn't understand it. I felt incredibly angry. Anyway, so, you know, things carried on. And, and um, you know, <laughs> there, was get, there I was getting, getting pretty disheartened. And um, so towards the end of my stay, um, I, I, I started to feel that perhaps, you know, the right of return would not happen. And um, as, this, as this thought struck me, I felt a shiver of alarm. Ever since we left Jerusalem and throughout my life, I had held on to our cause as that of a nation which was dispossessed and must one day return to its country. It was the underlying theme of all my writings, my lectures, and my political work for Palestine. I could not accept for that national cause to be whittled down to one of local occupation after 1967. Nor did I share the political fashion for what was called pragmatism in dealing with the right of return, 
shorthand for selling the refugees down the river. For me, return was at the heart of the issue. Without it, the injustice that had blighted our lives for generations would never cease. One day, when my sister and I had been discussing our fragmented family and how dispersed we were, how no one lived close to the other, each alone in the world, and how unnatural it all was, she said bitterly, if we had never left our country, none of this would ever have happened. We would have been amongst our kin, growing up together, helping each other, none of us living or dying alone. And looking up to heaven, she raised her hands, palms upward in supplication, and exclaimed with quiet vehemence, I pray to Almighty God that he may wreck their lives as they have wrecked ours. I knew there were formidable, there were formidable practical difficulties in the way of our return, an aim that seemed ever more unattainable with the passage of time, but I was determined that Israel should never be allowed to get away with what it had done, despite the resignation and defeatism of the Palestinian official stance and the indifference and cynicism I saw amongst many Palestinians around me, I never once doubted the rightness of my position or that the crime committed against us in 1948 would somehow be redressed. I could not have lived with myself if I had thought differently. Such an injustice could not be allowed to stand for good and the perpetrators would sooner or later have to give up their gains. The Palestinian refugee camps which still stood after more than half a century, not one of them ever closed down, bore eloquent testimony to, un to an unfinished business that would have to find its, pro its proper conclusion. But now, for the first time, my core belief in that certainty began to falter. I thought about the exiled Palestinian communities, long settled in Britain, Europe, America, and elsewhere. They were well established, and although they still remained devoted to what they called the cause of Palestine, and many of their children too, they went on entrenching themselves ever more deeply in their adopted countries. Many had found a workable accommodation for their commitment to the cause in the form of various activities and charitable works. These would not bring Palestine back, but it was a comfortable compromise that satisfied the demands of conscience and did not upset the tenor of everyday life. I could see this situation continuing for good. What cause did such exiles really adhere to? And how likely was it that any of them so comfortably settled would truly strive for the right of return? Could the refugees trapped in their camps, helpless and still dreaming of return, make anything happen? Would those whose primary concern was not the right of return, but the struggle against Israel's occupation and how to end it? Had Israel kept us out of our homeland for so long that we were forced to make alternative lives and thus suspend indefinitely our right of return? And in such circumstances, would any of us ever get back? The thought was unendurable. Even to, even to contemplate it sickened me. So, 
that's uh, that's um, how, but don't think that's how the book ends. So, you know, but you see how it made me feel, really. And I, I don't think this was fanciful. I think that what I said there is a representation of the true situation. I include myself, by the way. I am settled in, in Britain. I'm settled in London. My daughter was born in London. Um, you know, uh, I am settled, and so are you. Those of you who are Palestinians, you're settled. Uh, you have made lives here. You have homes. Will you return? Will you help us return? You know? So th these truths were born in on me. Um, and uh, I just um, uh, say to everybody that the adherence that we all feel to the Palestine cause, the fact that you all recognize the key, uh, must always remain as the seed from which a plant will one day grow when circumstances allow. That was Palestinian writer and academic Rada Karmi reading from and discussing her book, Return, a Palestinian Memoir, at the Palestine Center in Washington, D.C. in 2015. Finally, we hear from historian Ilan Pape, author of many books, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, he gave a speech at New York University in 2016 about Israel's past, present, and future in the context of looking at Zionism as a settler colonial project. Here are excerpts from that speech. The most important moment in the project of Zionism as a settler colonialist project was 1948. It took time for the Zionist movement, the leaders of the Zionist movement, to prepare the ethnic cleansing of 1948. They needed, first of all, to map all the Palestinian villages and towns, which they did in the early 1940s. They needed to wait for the right historical moment, and the Holocaust in Europe gave them that historical moment. They needed to wait for the weakening of the British interest and uh, rule in Palestine. And they found the right moment. One should say they found the right moment, although it was not a complete ethnic cleansing. It was, quote-unquote, quite a successful ethnic cleansing. Half of Palestine's villages were destroyed. Half of Palestine's towns were demolished. Half of Palestine's population were expelled and became refugees. It's very interesting to read, as our colleague Irene Genzier did in a recent book of her that just came out, I think, a month or two ago, to read the American documents about 1948 and 1949 that are now open to the public. Almost every American representative on the ground, whether they came from the State Department, whether they were part of the CIA infrastructure, or whether they were sent by President Truman, were writing back home to Washington that Israel should be pressured to allow the refugees to return to their homes because the homes are intact, or were intact. And the White House answered back that the Israelis claimed that uh, these people were fleeing or fled and were not expelled. And none of the American representatives on the ground understood the connection between the two. They said, does it matter whether people were expelled, whether they left because they were afraid of the war, why shouldn't they not be, have the right to return? If we think about it in 2016, 
Can you think about a situation, especially in Europe today, where refugees would come to the Swe Swedish government or the German government and say, we want to go home, and they would not be allowed to go home. This is un unthinkable. Even in 1948, it was unthinkable. And something happened, in the, as Irene Genzier describes in the book, there was a certain dialectical process happening in 48-49 that explains to us a lot about American policy today towards Israel and Palestine. Somehow this exceptionalism that would not be accepted anywhere else in the world was, uh, took place. Namely, at the beginning of 49, people were still, not people, the administration imposed sanctions on Israel for not allowing the Palestinian refugees to return. In the beginning of 1950, it used the Israeli discourse to explain why refugees should not be allowed to return. And when the message from not only the United States, but the message from the international community is that although settler colonialism elsewhere is something of the past, the genociding people, eliminating people, taking over by force someone else's homeland is something that belongs to the period before the Second World War and not after the Second World War. This is the period of decolonization. This is the, people, the, 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 the period that at least ethically, this is not part of the normative discourse anymore. Now, for most native people, settler colonialism ended in genocide. And we don't want to see that happening in Palestine, although that's also an option. There are two, there are three actually, uh, case studies recently of settler colonialism coming to an end in a more peaceful way. And we should look at these three examples towards the end of this analysis and think about the implication of these processes for a new thinking about Israel and Palestine. And what would it mean for the definition of the Palestinian liberation movement in the future? The definition of the radical anti-Zionist groups in Israel in the future? And the international perception of what is a solution in the future? One example is the north of Ireland, a very long project of settler colonialism. Northern Ireland, the north of Ireland. Protestants were settled there from the 17th century onwards. It took them a long time to find a certain solution. It's not perfect, it's not ideal, but it's a blessing compared to what happened there before. There is the violent and very uh, uh, swift ending of settler colonialism in Zimbabwe which was based on the idea that no settler colonialist project can come to an end without redistribution, redistribution of natural resources, especially land. It was done very violently in Zimbabwe. I'm not sure it's a good model. And then we have the South African model, where the settler community was offered a a compromise it eventually accepted 
after years of sanctions and boycott and a very brave struggle by the ANC on the ground. The political apartheid, which was the main means to implement the logic of elimination in the case of the white settlers in South Africa, the political apartheid would come to an end, but in return, the economic apartheid will continue. Also not a very good model, but still, we would rather be in South Africa today than in South Africa under the days of apartheid. So in Palestine and in Israel, we have to think about these models, <coughs> their weaknesses, their advantages. But of course, just to begin, we need to forsake the kind of language and paradigms which deny historical fact that Zionism is a settler colonialist movement. You know, saying about a society that it is settler colonialist does not mean much. But, and I thought when I was part of the group that started to write articles, create journals about it, have courses in universities and conferences about Zionism and settler colonialism, I thought this would be just the beginning of the conversation. But I was wrong. In my university, I, I organized a conference called, uh, under the title, Settler Colonialism in Palestine. And 12 hours later, the Israeli embassy, the board of Jewish deputies, even the prime minister's office in Britain, called my university to say that they would not allow such an anti-Semitic and pro-Nazi conference to take place. We also found out later that neither the Board of Deputies, nor the Israeli Ambassador, neither the Prime Minister of Britain knew what settler colonialism was about. But they were very worried about the connection between colonialism and Israel. Luckily, I, I'm in a good university. So the conference did take place. <coughs> but it, I understood from the reaction that actually, probably even the Israelis themselves understand that Israel is a settler colonialist society. Otherwise, they would not have objected to such an analysis. And this is our task. Can we help from the outside? Can we build from the inside a framework for relationship between the third generation of settlers and the local population? That would require redefining the PLO, which is based on a very different paradigm. The PLO was based on the FLN, the idea that the Zionists are colonialist settlers that could be driven back home. This is not going to happen, ever. We need the ANC as a model, not the FLN. So the, the Palestinian liberation movement has to redefine its ideas of the project of liberation. Of course, Israeli Jews would be the last one to join in this exercise. You don't leave a comfort zone of a settler just because someone wrote a good article. <laughs> what you need is a good boycott and divestment and suction movement to begin and get that into their head. So we should enhance our efforts to strengthen the BDS efforts against Israel. We should ask the Palestinians to lead the way in defining what is the liberation project, also in terms of social justice not just in terms of political arrangement, otherwise we will fall to the same threat as post-apartheid South Africa. 
For most Israelis, such a conversation would be a conversation that comes from Mars. But it doesn't matter. We have to insist because we wasted 40 years of talking about nothing, doing nothing, injecting millions into the West Bank that did nothing, creating Palestinian institutions, both in the West Bank and inside Israel, that don't mean, nothing, that don't mean anything. So we, we lost time, we lost energy, but, and I'm not going to do it, I'm too old. There's a younger generation that understands these issues, both in Israel and in Palestine. And I think they are beginning to build a different discourse. Because, and with this I would end, because the greatest success of Zionism was fragmenting the Palestinians into different groups. And each group had its own agenda. It was much easier to deal with the Palestine issue. But nobody thought about Facebook when they created the apartheid wall, when they ghettoized Gaza. You can talk in the same moment with people in Gaza, in Hilwe, in NYU, Haifa, and Exeter in the morning. With everyone you can talk. And people talk. Young people talk to each other. Young people are thinking in such a way that, in fact, the present political parties, both in Israel and in Palestine, I think, will not be relevant in the near future. The problem is, of course, as we know from neighboring Arab states, that the collapse of existing structure does not mean peace. It can mean chaos, it can mean carnage, it can mean anarchy. But again, because these things have happened before, you have enough knowledge and expertise, maybe to prevent them happening uh, elsewhere. So I would end by saying that if in this university you would insist of teaching Israel and Palestine in any course you give on colonialism, on settler colonialism, on apartheid, on genocide, if you will continue to support movements such as the BDS, and if you will have a modicum of conscience in you, and you will not support the policies against the Palestinians, history will judge you as people who have contributed to a better future in Israel and Palestine. Thank you. That was professor and historian Ilan Pape speaking at New York University in 2016. To watch all of these speeches you heard in full, read the podcast blog post on electronicintifada.net. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. 
Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>